0: questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. And today I think we have nine questions. And I apologize if I seem a little low energy. I just didn't sleep well last night. Do you ever have that where you just, it's hard to fall asleep and then you wake up a bunch of times? It's just one of those nights. So I apologize if I'm low energy, but we will get through this. There are some wonderful questions this week. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for tuning in. Let's jump into question number one. And that question reads, Hi, Katie. Can you please explain the difference between when it's important to, quote, feel your feelings or sit with your feelings versus when you should use distraction-based coping skills? I feel like I get stuck doing too much of one or the other. When I try using coping skills, I feel like I'm avoiding my feelings. Very common. We'll talk about this. But when I try to sit with my feelings, I can get lost in this and feel like I'm just ruminating on the same thoughts and feelings over and over. I hope this makes sense. Thank you. It totally makes sense. And someone left an amazing comment on this where they kind of broke down what they do. And it's similar to what I do with my patients who feel this way, especially those of us with BPD or borderline personality disorder, but we'll get into that too. So, okay. When we distract, I want to jump in with this first. When we distract, it's not about uh, ignoring the feelings. It's essentially a tool that we can use when in the moment we aren't able to actually allow ourselves to feel it. Okay. So distraction, I know it can feel like we are just ignoring them or stuffing them down, but it should be done as a way to almost like back burner the feelings until we have time to allow ourselves to feel them. And when we feel them, what I want you to tune into, and I know we're kind of jumping into this a little bit. Some people, There's a comment on this about like, what if you're unable to feel your feelings? So that answer is coming. So hang with me. But for this first question, the when we're feeling our feelings, What I want you to pay attention to is like any urges you might have, good or bad, doesn't matter if they're unhealthy or healthy. I want you to pay attention to what comes up for you. Because if the urge is, I want to self-injure, I want to use my eating disorder or or whatever, using those unhealthy coping skills, maybe we want to shop or we want to uh, gamble or use drugs or alcohol or whatever, pay attention to that and let your therapist know that that's what comes up for you. And then we're going to have to brainstorm some other things that we can do. Now, these aren't your traditional Coping skills, it's almost like, how can we do something that's beneficial for that emotion? So, when we're angry, what do we think might be a healthy way to get that out? You know, like, should I cry? Because anger is a secondary emotion, which I think is probably why a lot of research shows that if we're angry and we like go break a bunch of things, it doesn't always make us feel better. Like, the statistics don't line up with that. I know, surprising, right? Getting it out that way doesn't make us feel better we have to find a way to maybe like vent it like through journaling or talking to someone about what we're upset about um and there's usually like an action urge what we're trying to to figure out and get down to is the bodily action urge because let's say when i'm sad sometimes i want to curl in a ball like i would feel better if i was like under covers and my knees are up towards my chest right And I'm laying down, like think of what would feel good. If I'm angry, sometimes I want to like move. My body needs movement probably to like help process what's happening. When I feel overwhelmed, sometimes it's like I need to like shake. Again, the movement is helpful. Um, and also when i'm overwhelmed or angry i want to talk a lot like i need to vent it to someone so pay attention to that that's really what we're what we mean when we say like feel feel your feelings or like sit with it it doesn't mean ruminate i know we can feel like we get caught in that but instead of allowing ourselves to like go in circles try to tap into what's my action urge is that urge going to be helpful or unhelpful could I, if it's helpful, can I do it? Like when I'm talking about the things like I want to curl up in a ball or I want to cry maybe, or um, maybe I want to take a hot shower. That sounds good. Or I want to move. I want to go for a walk. I want to pet my dog. Are there things that you can do like actions you can take? Because those tend to be helpful in the moment, instead of letting us just like cycle in rumination. Um, and also remember that when we allow ourselves to tap in and do those things, the feelings don't last for that long, maybe a few minutes on average. Um, obviously, if they're really strong emotions, they can last for a little bit longer, but they go and we're on to the next one. Um, and then the distraction, like I said, the difference between doing that, what I'm talking about, finding that action urge, trying to do something to kind of allow us to express it and do what we need to move through it. Because, sorry, sorry, sidebar, the reason that, um, or not the reason, but a lot of research and a lot of people in the psychological community believe that it's in our freeze where we don't do anything with what's happened to us, whether it's a trauma or Just an emotion. It's that freeze that ends up biting us later, meaning it can lead to, if it is a trauma, it can lead to PTSD. If it's like anger, it can turn to anger in, can be anxiety, depression, can come out of it. And so it's in that freeze or that not doing anything that we actually end up with mental illnesses and mental, and it can exacerbate our already existing mental health issues, right? And so what I'm, why I say you need to find an action and take it is we need to break out of that freeze and like unfreeze ourselves. And so it's almost always important for us to feel our feelings and allow them to happen. You know, it's okay. It, it doesn't last for that long. The, the sooner we allow ourselves to feel them, the better we will actually end up feeling. But there is a, there's going to be a need in some parts of our life where we must distract, right? Like I'm about to give a presentation. Like um, I think I've told this story here, but I found out that my, my papa passed away the morning before I had a talk at YouTube. And this is like in 2019, October of 2019. And I woke up and I don't know why I didn't even think about how weird this was, but it was like seven in the morning, New York time. And, you know, my family's on Pacific time. So back in Washington States, they're three hours back. My mom had called me at 730, like New York time. It's weird, right? Cause that would be what, five, four. That's crazy. So anyway, I didn't even think about it. I was like, oh, morning mama, you know, Oh, you maybe, because my mom's thoughtful. And I was like, maybe she's calling to like, say, good luck. You're going to be great. Cause that's just how she is. But she called to tell me that he had passed away. And she didn't want me to find out from anybody else or any other way. She wanted to make sure she told me first and it had just happened. And I couldn't do it then. I couldn't cry. I couldn't grieve. I couldn't, I couldn't even process. And I had that talk in like an hour and it was like 9am. I had that talk. So I, I backburnered it. I distracted. I kept busy. I, I was like, okay, I need to pack up my things. I need to get this. I need to shower. I need to run through my notes, you know, do the talk, be done. And then I cried in the airport. <laughs> now that wasn't ideal. It was, I was talking to Sean, like telling him, you know, cause I'd already texted him to tell him what had happened. Um, and that's when you have to distract because there's legitimately not, it's not a good time. I can't fall apart right now. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the time. I don't, it's not okay. Right. Or it's not a safe place. Can't do that. So, those are that's when we should distract, is when we legitimately cannot fall apart at that point. Now, I know a lot of you out there can be like, well, I just can't fall apart. Like, I'm the one holding it together for my family. That's where you're wrong because we do not have to hold it together for other people. It's actually healthier for our children to see us get upset and to see us get angry and to have ranges of emotions because what that proves to our children is that emotions are okay and they're safe. So often as parents, we think, and I know I don't have children. I'm not calling any of you bad parents. I don't know what that's like. I can't even imagine the sleep deprivation that comes with that. But I do know research, okay? And we know that children learn from watching people. And if they see you not be okay with being upset, being sad, being angry, or not wanting to talk about something that's difficult, or not cry to grieve, they're going to think that their urge to do those things is wrong mama doesn't do that or dad doesn't do that. That's not how they express their upset. Something must be wrong with me. Right? So it's really healthy. I know it's like contrary to like what we think, but it's really healthy for children to see us go through emotions and experience them. And it's okay. It's actually good for them. And if they ask questions, we have to be willing to answer. So like, mama, why are you crying? Well, you know, like let's say in the instance where my papa passed away, papa died this morning and I'm really sad about it cry with your children. It's okay. And that they say, I don't like to see you sad. You can be like, I know I don't like to feel sad, but it's, I'm going to miss him. It's sad for me. And that kind of uh, conversation and emotional, it's like holding the emotion for your children is really healing for both, um, honestly, for both you and your child. Anyway, I don't want to get on that for too long, but I want you to know that you don't have to hold it together because some people feel like I'm the only one holding it together for my family. And that's actually not necessary. It's almost like, um, you're, you're lifting up this heavy wall or this, like, let's say, let me start over. You're lifting up this heavy branch that has fallen that you, you think your family needs to climb under it, but they already climbed over it and they're on the other side and you're still holding up this heavy branch. And you're like, no, I have to do this for my family to get them out. And I'm telling you, you don't have to, they're fine. They climbed over it. They're moving on. So you can let that go. Okay. Now, um, there was a comment on this. Actually, I think two or three, it looks like three. He said, and somewhat related, what do you do when you find yourself unable to feel your feelings after being so numbed out for so long? It almost feels silly even asking, but how do you teach yourself to feel feelings? Like when when maybe, um, oh, like when you think, maybe you want to cry because you think it might be cathartic, but you just can't. That's not silly at all. I think I've talked about this as well, but when I was writing my first book, Are You Okay? We ended up not including these, but part of what we, my editor and I thought would be cool is to have some handwritten uh, homework, like people that actually did the homework that I had put into the book. And one of those uh, homework assignments was to come up with three to five emotions that you feel. And so I was like, okay, I'll just ask like my friends and family. So I asked Sean, I asked my mom, I asked my mom's boyfriend, Larry. I asked um, uh, my good friend, Joanna. I asked, uh, I asked quite a few people. I forget who all I asked. I think Rocio, maybe. Anyway, asked a bunch of my friends. And um, everybody had a really hard time coming up with them, except for my mom's boyfriend, Larry. He was like, oh, easy. He wrote a bunch down. He's like, well, if I have more than five. And I was like, five's good. Don't worry. He's like, okay. He gave it to me my mom and Sean and my friends were like, well, I don't, I don't even know what I'm feeling. Like, can you give some guidance? Like, what kind of things are you looking for? <laughs> and I was like, I'm just looking for whatever, whatever comes up. Like today, I feel a little low energy. So I'm kind of um, a little apathetic, right? You try to think of your emotions. Um, I don't feel stressed because I'm like too tired to feel stressed. Um, I definitely am feeling a little uh, lethargic, right? I don't even know. It's just funny, right? You, and you try to tap in. That's why the feelings wheel or feelings charts can be really helpful. It can spur like right now, if I'm like, cause I'm kind of tired, right? I'm like, I can't even think of them. And so I pull up the feelings wheel and I look at it and I'm like, you know what? It's kind of the, the indifferent, the apathetic. I, I kind of feel a little sleepy, unfocused, right? And I look around, I'm not overwhelmed. Nope. I don't feel angry or disgusted Am I sad? Maybe a little bit. My grandma passed away recently. I feel a little grief, right? And you kind of go around this circle. If you look up thefeelingswheel.com, it it can sometimes help, but that doesn't work for all of us. For some of us, we look at those words and we're like, I don't even know. Do I feel that way? I don't know, right? It doesn't help. And so what I would encourage you to do instead is to notice again what your urges are. Do we have anything that we want to do? Do you want to be around other people? Do you want to be alone? Do you want to move your body? Do you want to sit still? Are you hungry? Like I know this sounds kind of silly, but sometimes tapping into what our body's asking of us can guide us towards what emotions we're experiencing. Because if, like I said, for me, if I want to vent to someone, I need to move my body, I'm definitely not in I'm more in the like angry, sad, disgusted, or maybe even fearful range. That's, I'm in those. So it kind of narrows it down, right? I've already cut off, you know, almost half of the feelings wheel. I know that if I'm surprised or happy, it's almost like I can't, ugh, I can't sit still. So I want to move, but it's a different kind of feeling. It's almost like bubbles in my body versus the anger is like, Muscle tightness. Do you know what I mean? So maybe think about like what you would assume. You don't have to know. What would I assume anger feels like? What would I assume being surprised feels like or be feeling bad or happy? What would that feel like in my body? What do you think I'd want to do? What, you know, if you that can sometimes assist. Um, also, I think it was, was it last week's question? I think it was last week's question where somebody talked about how, um, For them, it's not so much like what the feeling words, because I've talked about using the feelings wheel, having some of those words and then building on that, like putting it into a sentence, you like, what would that feel like? Okay. So I'm angry. Okay. What does anger describe anger to me without using the word anger? Okay. Anger feels like clenched fists, furrowed brow and wanting to shout. Right. Okay. So that can be helpful. But somebody said that it's not so much that it's not the, the, that, like thinking about it in that way, it's more the thoughts. And if they can acknowledge the thoughts they're having, that's how they know what they're feeling. And so that might work for you as well. So it's like tracking your thoughts. What what thoughts are running through your head? Can you just write those things down? No judgments. Write them down. They might guide you towards the feeling. And so those are just some of the tips and tools and tricks. It could be like, what's in your happening in your body? What's your urge? Um, it could be using the feelings wheel and considering what emotions like that might feel like to someone and seeing if that lines up. Um, and then obviously it could be tracking your thoughts. So those are just all some ways to hopefully help you numb out and know that that's very normal. Like I said, I did it with my friends and family and like only one of them was like able to do it easily. Now, the next question on this is same. I have BPD and cannot just sit with my feelings because they are so overwhelming. But if I use skills, I am basically running away from them. How do I manage feeling things without them burning me alive? With BPD, it's always very interesting. The skills within, so when you have borderline personality disorder, one of the best and most effective treatments is called DBT or dialectical behavior therapy. And the skills, thats I assume that's what this person is mentioning when they talk about using skills. In DBT, there's a ton of like tools and skills you can use when you feel overwhelmed. And those skills are not like back burner. For instance, when I said you can't deal with it right now, like I couldn't, fall apart and grieve the loss of my papa because I had to give a talk. So I had to back burner it knowing that I would come back to it later. And that's the tricky thing about uh, DBT and using the skills is that when we use those skills, that's not it. It's not like, oh, I backburnered it, period. It's I backburnered it and I made time to fall apart later today at this time or after I'm finished with X, Y, or Z. And so those skills to help you distract or to help you backburner should not last forever. We need to set a time and allow ourselves to fall apart. And it can feel, especially when we have BPD, because we're like super sensitive to emotions. I was, one of the best ways to describe those of us with BPD is like emotional burn victims. Like any little slight is so painful. So we can feel like the emotions are going to burn us alive, but that's when we use some of, are like what I'd call like emotion regulation skills within DBT, which is like, have you checked in and done your halt? Like, are you hungry, angry, lonely, tired? Are you taking care of your basic needs? Because if we aren't it makes us in like incredibly more vulnerable to those emotions and they can feel so much stronger. And then going back to what I said at the beginning, we have to still like do those same things. Like what are the urges that I have in my body? Are they healthy? Okay. Can I do those things? Do they make me feel better? Like moving, going for a walk, shaking it out, doing some stretches, petting my dog, um, taking a warm shower or a cold shower. Do I need to change my temperature of my body? Um, What is it that we need to do? What's the urge? Do I need to vent to someone or journal out something really mean um, because I'm feeling angry? Using tapping in, because the thing again, about DB, uh, about BPD, having BPD is that we are so disconnected. We don't want to be in our bodies because we can think that there's something wrong with the way that we feel because we've probably been told our whole lives we're too sensitive or why'd we get so upset about that? You're always overreacting. We're we're told those kind of nasty messages our whole life. And so when we get older, we feel like anything we feel is not okay. And so any amount of emotion is overwhelming because we've never allowed ourselves to experience it. And so that's why we have to kind of tap into those urges within our body and listen to them as long as they're healthy. If they're unhealthy, let your therapist know. And we need to come up with some things that could be alternative activities, alternative things to do. Um, yeah. And that's so that we're not running away from them. And obviously it's setting aside time for this because we can't do it out in public all the time. M- won't feel safe crying in our office, you know? Um, We want to make sure that we're doing it in a place where we have the time to do it. And just set aside 10 minutes. When I tell you feelings pass, they do. Trust me. Now, there was a final question said, and also, why is it even important to be able to feel and process feelings? Good question. I understand it's something that I struggle with, and apparently being better at this will solve a lot of problems. But why? And how do I know that this is actually the problem? Okay, um, it's important to feel and process feelings because if we don't, like I said, they turn into mental illnesses. And the reason for that is that feelings are, they're not good or bad. We judge them all the time. They're actually just uh, evidence. So when things happen in our life, because we don't have control over anything but ourselves, right? Things happen to us in our life. Let's say I lose my job or uh, we have to move because Sean got a different job in a different city. Those things are happening and I'm going to feel some kind of way about it, right? I could feel excited. I could feel mad. I could be overwhelmed. I could be disappointed, I could feel all sorts of things. And the reason that it's key to acknowledge these and process them is because they tell me what what I'm going to need to do to take care of myself. Feelings erupt out of our body and our brain because some there's some something that needs to be done, right? Like if we're moving and I feel overwhelmed, that means I need to express that to my husband and I need to figure out if I can get some help so that I don't feel so overwhelmed? Is there a way I can offload some of this? Or do I just need to talk it through and process it with them and make notes about what needs to take place, right? Like, that's why. Because feelings are helpful information. And if we ignore them, what we're doing is ignoring our body's response to our life. And then we can't take any action to help ourselves feel better or to manage what's coming up and what we're going through. And then, like I said, we'll have uh, depression, anxiety, eating disorder, self-injury struggles, um, any number of things we can struggle with as a result. Panic attacks, PTSD, um, you name it, because we haven't given ourselves an opportunity to at least acknowledge these indicators. Like our brain is telling us like, hey, something's wrong. Something's wrong. We're in fight, flight, freeze. This is uncomfortable. I've dumped all of my adrenaline. I'm, you know, we're going into, I don't know, extreme fatigue. It tells us things. And if we don't pay attention, we essentially aren't taking care of our mental health or our physical health because we know how inextricably those two are linked. Um, and that's why it would solve a lot of problems. It not only solves our own like physical, like physical, mental and physical problems, but also our relationships. It helps improve them because then we can tell people what we need, what we expect, what we're hurt by, all of that. And that could um, minimize fights. It could help resolve disagreements that we've had and it can help people feel closer to us the the level of intimacy and vulnerability can increase which not only like increases that connection which is super soothing to our nervous system but it also helps us feel um more invested and it like deepens the the connection and the what's the word i'm looking for the commitment to each other okay um oh and the last question how do i know what no, that's actually the problem, because if we aren't um, acknowledging and expressing or processing our feelings, then we will be having a we'll having struggle with a mental illness. Obviously, it's not the only thing that leads to mental illness or physical illnesses. By the way, Um, we can have like you know genetic predispositions and stuff, but it will exacerbate them. Like I just filmed a video that hasn't come out yet, um, but about anxiety and how social anxiety can like exacerbate things like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. It's not going to cause it, but it can exacerbate it. Um, And there's all sorts of different things that it can like increase levels of stress and overwhelm to our nervous system can have a ton of ripple effects when it comes to our physical health. Let's move on to question number two. And question number two says, hi there. I am wondering what would constitute a quote unquote emergency that would be acceptable for your client to reach out to you between sessions. I am constantly worried that I'm crossing boundaries and not bothering my therapist, especially between sessions. I found myself this past week reaching out to the crisis text line because of self-injury. Oh no, suicidal ideation. Sorry. Sometimes I think SI means self-injury, but suicidal ideation because I didn't know what else to do. And side note, It wasn't really, it was really not helpful. Oh, I'm so sorry. Sometimes you get good crisis counselors, sometimes you don't. Should I have contacted my therapist during the spiral? Yes. Or did I do the right thing by not reaching out? Building off of this, I don't know why, but I don't want to tell my therapist at all about what happened that night. I'm afraid of being attention seeking and dramatic because you sought so much attention. You're being so, so judgmental. All right. Okay. We'll get into this since I obviously didn't go through with anything. I also don't want anyone to stop me if I make that decision. So maybe it's better that she doesn't know. Sorry, this is dark. My brain isn't a fun place to be most of the time. Any advice would be much appreciated. You don't need to apologize. We have to have a place to talk about this and this is a perfect place to do so. So an emergency would be that if I have a patient that is like, so. okay, suicidal ideation for anyone wondering. Is when we're not actively suicidal, but we're thinking about it and the thoughts are pretty constant. Okay. Um, There's passive suicidal ideation, meaning I'm thinking about suicide. I don't really have a plan. It's in my head. I'm, you know, things are happening. And then there's active, where it's like I'm putting together my plan or I have a timeline or the threat is imminent, meaning like it's happening soon. There's all of that. And so, even with my patients, if, if the suicidal thoughts, I always tell my patients this, if the suicide, suicidal thoughts have come back and they don't seem to go away and they're bothering you, you have to reach out. That's an emergency. Now, every therapist is going to be different. Um, I would ask your therapist this, what do they constitute an emergency? Like when would they think it's acceptable for you to reach out? It's okay to ask them. I would assume like 99.99% of the time a therapist is going to say, yes, please reach out. If you consider reaching out to a crisis text line or a suicidal hotline, you should reach out to your therapist. I would prefer personally to be ahead of that. Like I would want them to reach out to me before doing that. That's there and it's a resource, but I want to be made aware so that we can take, you know, take action in some way, whether that means that we have an emergency session over the phone or in person if we can, or does that mean that we need to be go to the hospital and I need to meet you there? Like what? where are we at and what, what do you think is best for you and how can we keep you safe? And so I really think that yes, you should have reached out to your therapist. You're not bothering them that it's what we're here for. It's part of what we do that. I mean, that's why, I mean, I have two phones, like this is my personal phone, but I have my work phone for just that reason. And yes, your therapist might not pick up or might not respond right away. I think in, or at least in California, it was like within 24 hours is a reasonable, reasonable expectation. Um, but in an emergency, usually my patients will text and I'll text back and call them and stuff. So, um, so yes, you should have contacted your therapist. I'm glad that you did use another resource, but it ended up not being helpful. And at that point, again, you could have totally reached out to your therapist and probably should have. Um, now, I would—I am curious about why you don't want to tell your therapist what happened. I'd assume shame or embarrassment. A lot of my patients, even the ones who have you know had uh, suicide attempts in the past or intense suicidal thoughts, they don't want to tell me about it because. Of what it says about them, or they're worried that I'm going to overreact. There's a lot of different thoughts. So I'm curious about that. And I would even let your therapist know about it. I didn't want to tell you because I was afraid you were going to think this, that, or the other, you know, so that they know what your concerns are. It's really important we communicate, if we can, with them. And then even asking them, like, what would it, what would constitute, or not really constitute, I guess, what would cause them to put you in the hospital. If that's what you're wanting to avoid. I know a lot of us are scared about that. If you're wanting to avoid that, it's okay to ask your therapist, hey, like, you know, I was having thoughts of suicide. So I called the, or I got in touch touch with the crisis text line, ended up not being that helpful. I'm okay, but I don't know. You know, I was afraid you were going to put me in the hospital if I reached out. It's okay to ask that too and find out more. Would you have, what, what are you looking for? What would cause you to do that? Um, so yeah. Okay. So I think I've answered that question. Um, so it's okay to dig into that. I'm very curious what you know, what it is, why you don't want to tell your therapist. And okay, so that's it. And yeah, it's you're not alone with saying that you don't want anybody to stop you when you've made that decision. That's very normal. But right now, you're not. And we want to help you feel better. I want you to get that hope back before you make that decision, because it can get better. I'm here to tell you. I have a video, an older video now, but it's called Suicide and Honest Discussion. I encourage you to watch it hopefully it's helpful. Um, it does get better. Sometimes I was looking for that little spark and that's why reaching out to our therapist is really important because sometimes they can just light that match just enough to give us hope for the future so we can get through today and feel, you know, feel better and get on to tomorrow. Oh. okay. Now there's a comment on, that says, yes, I have been wondering this too. I'm currently having a major breakdown with my school counselor who I trust because I don't want to be hospitalized. There we go. See? And I've um, always been honoring my words to keep myself safe, yet at times, recently more so, I'm tired of being in the same spiral for a year now. I'm really tempted to end my life. It is, um, it's my logical side trying to stop. My emotions are just too heavy at this point that I'm in crisis mode. How far are the boundaries though between client and therapist? Also, I am running away from my therapist because there's too emotionally close for comfort. Yet I yearn for that comfort. It's because of an incident that happened a year ago. That sounds maybe a little attachment based or borderline personality disorder-ish. Um, okay. So again, we need to know what their parameters are. What When would they hospitalize us and why? And for the fact that you feel like you're just caught in this same spiral for a year, I'm very curious if you've considered medication or more intensive treatment because you said school counselor. So I'm like, how often do you see them? I hope it's at least once a week, if not twice a week. And I, I wonder if you're on any antidepressants because when we feel like we just can't get out, I've talked about this in the past. Um, and I even had a video recently about like how do antidepressants work. So if you want to know more, my uh, good friend, Dr. Ben Ryan, he answered our questions. It was wonderful. Now, when we're drowning in our depressive symptoms or in our suicidal ideation, meaning I can't even try anything in therapy. I'm having a tough time being present in therapy. I'm having a tough time just being me that's where medication can come in. It can help us get our head above water so that then we can actually do things to take care of ourselves. Like, I mean, I've had patients who can't eat, they like they don't have the energy to feed themselves. They're not showering. It's hard for them to get to work or school because of their depression. And once we get them on medication that works, I know it can be hard and it can be trying to have to like, sorry, I've got a tickle hair. If you're watching, I'm uh, trying to find it in my back. It's getting me. Um, but anyway, we, um, it can take us a few trials of medications before we find one that works for us. But once we do, it can be life changing. So consider that. Maybe see if there's a psychiatrist that comes to the school as well, if, if that's where you're seeing your counselor. Um, because back when I was growing up, we had a psychiatrist that would come to the school once a month. Maybe you could see somebody there. Maybe we could ask our parents to make us an appointment or we can make an appointment. Um, but yeah, that would be my recommendation. Okay because you shouldn't always be in crisis mode. That We need to get you out of that. And that might mean more intensive treatment, like a day program or more, uh, more often, more frequent sessions, or maybe some medication. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, happy Thursday, Katie. Happy Thursday. Said, could you go deeper into what a flashback actually is? What's the difference between a flashback and an emotional flashback? Those are no different. Or body memories. How do triggers come into play also? You have mentioned uh, that with a flashback, you go back to another time and a place. Do you physically see yourself there or is it just that you feel like you are you are there? I have times where fighting or certain actions of others reminds me of a situation in the past, but I wouldn't say that I see myself there. I also have times when, um, when in the dark, even though I know someone isn't behind me, I get that feeling like someone is and eventually either have to get away from that dark area or put my back against the wall. How does that fit in? Oh yeah. How do those fit in? Okay. This is a great question. Now, a flashback is just that flashing back and it can look and feel different person to person. So can it be an emotional flashback? Yes. Where if anybody's wondering what that means, it's like we, we feel emotionally the same way we did back when that trauma happened. Flashbacks are attached to trauma. They're not attached to anything else. Like it's only attached to overwhelm to our nervous system. Okay. Um, Otherwise, it's just a memory, right? I can look back on a certain time and remember, I don't know, when I first met Sean or something, right? That's a memory. There's nothing traumatic or overwhelming associated with that. And so I don't flashback to it. And flashbacks are um, part of our PTSD response. Now, not everyone with PTSD has flashbacks, but they're very common. And it's very commonly associated with that. So Emotional flashback is the same as a regular flashback and body memories can be. Meaning that like if we have like what I, you know, like a body memory flashback, like we feel it happening to us again in our body. Yes, that's the same. Again, consider like trauma response and flashing back to that overwhelm. Now, Yes, sometimes we feel like we're back there and it's happening to us all over again. But a lot of you have told me that you'll just feel like you're watching, like you're flipping through a um, like a photo album of the time, like these images, because not all of us have that full narrative or that full story. So it's not like we can replay that portion of our life movie, right? We can watch bits of it. Clips can flashback. Uh, still images can flashback. Some people have told me it's black and white instead of color, you know, all of that, those are still flashbacks. So it's, it's not like it's the same for everyone. So yes, it can feel like we're back there, but for a lot of us, it just feels like, um, it feels like a very similar situation, you know, has happened. And we're like, oh, we have the same emotions, the same bodily response. It, you know we had the same feeling as back then even if we don't think i went back there our brain and our our bodily memory flashed back to that time does that make sense i hope so now um that's so what you're talking about like um when you're in, a, in the dark and even though you know someone's not behind you you get that feeling that someone is that doesn't sound like a flashback to me but that does sound like a trauma response like hypervigilance essentially now hypervigilance is when we be like, are always on edge thinking, like you. it's like you're thinking there's someone behind you that could hurt you. And in order for you to make that feeling go away, you have to remove that as an option, like put your, you know, get away from the dark or put your back against the wall. And so I wouldn't consider that a flashback, but I would consider that a trauma response, a, a meaning the hypervigilance. Now there was a comment on this and it says, as an add-on, how can you tell the difference between a flashback and a memory? I feel like I kind of answered that. A memory is something that's not emotionally charged. It's not associated with a trauma or a Period of time that was overwhelming for us. Um, A memory is just that, it's just a memory. Um, Also, is there a difference? Is another question. Also, is there a difference between being triggered, a flashback, and thinking about the play by play aspects of your traumas when you're by yourself, even if you don't think you're actually there? I never thought I was actually back in my trauma, just that I was triggered by things that I connected to my trauma and I froze or that I was thinking about little snippets of it when I was by myself. But again, I knew I wasn't there and I didn't understand how these were still considered flashbacks to my last therapist. Is she correct that those are flashbacks too? If so, um, Hollywood does a really bad job of depicting flashbacks. Yes. Hollywood, I think because it has to be visual, they make them always these visual flashbacks, you know, like where they cut to something in the past and they're like, something's happening. Because I feel like that's the only way they could really do it. There's no way that they could depict in film body memories, maybe, you know, might be a little bit more difficult. I have to get a little more creative and, you know, they aren't able to figure that one out. People might get confused. Okay. So let's dig through question by question. So how can you tell the difference between a flashback and a memory did that? and then, okay, difference between being triggered. So being triggered does not always lead to a flashback. Being triggered just means that something happened, like usually it's a scent Sound, it's one of our senses. Using our five senses, something in our environment has reminded us of the trauma and caused some kind of trauma response. Now, that could be, like I said, the hypervigilance where you're just really on edge. It could mean that we just like shut down, like we have to leave. We could feel overwhelmed. It could mean that we flash back to that time and we feel like something's happening to us again or have a similar experience as then. It could mean that as well. So, triggered is really when something reminds us of our trauma. Okay. Flashback. I feel like I told you what that is. And thinking about the play-by-play aspects. That sounds like, honestly, like a lot of the work that we do in therapy, when you're trying to like make sense of the trauma and you're playing it over and over to, um, to try to process it. Now, if you're doing it without your therapist, it sounds like when you're by yourself, you're kind of doing it. That might not be helpful and you might find it to be re-traumatizing. So talk to your therapist about it because part of me feels like it, it kind of maybe it is a flashback that's happening to you. If you were triggered, I'd have to know kind of like what led up to it. Um, because like I said, flashbacks can be like play by play. Like you're watching a, the movie of your life back again, or you're flipping through the photo album or something like that, right? So that could be what's going on, or it could be just you trying to process it. I don't really know. I'd have to kind of figure out why that happens. Like, is there a trigger? Or like, well, and, or and, like how you feel while you're doing it. Um, because I would, I am always cautious of that stuff because it can be re-traumatizing. Um, and so, yeah, okay. It sounds like, and sorry, I'm, I'm continuing to read back and said, I never thought those were actually, that I was actually back in my trauma. Like I said, not everybody feels that way. Um, Okay. And just thinking of little snippets. Gotcha. Okay. And yes, I think she is correct that those most likely were flashbacks, because as I'm reading through the question again, she said, I just thought I was triggered by things that I connected to my trauma and that I froze, or I was just thinking about little snippets of it when I was by myself. But again, well, I don't know, because then were you triggered then? You know, did you feel like it was back there and it was kind of happening to you again? Or were you just make, trying to make sense of it? You know, those are the questions I would I would want you to answer before deciding whether it's a flashback or not. Okay. Now, as an add-on, it says, do some people actually believe intellectually that they are back there? Or is that just Hollywood's way of making trauma survivors who don't get those types of flashbacks doubt themselves? If not, then what makes a flashback different than any stressful memory that they defined it um, it as its own entity? Hmm. Okay. Okay. So hold on. Okay. First question says, not everyone believes they're actually back there. Like I said, Um, I think Hollywood depicts it that way again, because it's the best way to visually explain them. Um, and a flashback is different than a, well, I mean, I would just say a memory because a memory is not attached to a trauma or a sense of overwhelm. If it's a stressful memory, it potentially could have been so stressful that it was overwhelming to our system and it could be, we could have a trauma response as a result. Um, so that's really the difference there. Okay. And then another says also, do you have any kind of flashbacks? Oh, do you have to have flashbacks to be diagnosed with PTSD? No, it's part of the diagnosis, but it's not always there. It's not a necessity. The The main necessity is that you have to have had something happen. You have to have been traumatized, right? And then we have to... Uh, like, try to avoid things that remind us of that trauma. That's like the crux of a PTSD diagnosis. And then there's a ton of different symptoms like hypervigilance, uh, difficulty in relationships, um, difficulty regulating emotions, uh, you know, flashbacks. And there's all the other things that come with it, but not always. And then the final, another oh thing, there's two more it says, And are flashbacks and panic attacks similar? Uh, yes and no. I honestly can't tell the difference. I always say that I don't have flashbacks, but if a voice or or a place or something reminds me of something from my past. I have a panic attack. Is that a flashback? Um, no, that is a trauma response. A panic attack is different than a flashback because a panic attack happens when our system gets completely overwhelmed and it essentially doesn't know what to do with what's happening to us. And it goes into a panic. That's when we feel like we can like, we're going to faint. Um, we're going to do something embarrassing. We can be sweaty trouble catching our breath, our heart rate can go up, right? There's a lot of things that can happen when we're having a panic attack. And yes, it can mimic some of the experiences people have when they have a flashback, but they're different because not all people with panic attacks have PTSD and not all people with PTSD have panic attacks. Does that make sense? Um, Because a flashback is when, again, we're flashing back to what happened to us. It could be replaying a movie, could be flipping through a photo album or images or whatever, could feel like we're it's happening to us again. And we're back there. That does not happen in a panic attack. But like I said, a flashback can lead to a panic attack. Um, but not always, not everybody has them. I hope that's clear. Um, Okay. Now the last add-on says, do flashbacks have to come with body memories? No, not for everybody. Like I said, sometimes it's like watching a movie. Sometimes it's like flipping through a photo album. Sometimes it's like, you know, watch, like seeing little flashes of clips, like five, 10 seconds. Um, and sometimes we feel it in our body, but not, ev- and not everybody has body memories, especially people who struggle with connecting to their body at all. And um, it says, or is it just simply thoughts flashing in your mind? It can't be. Um, I have different flashes and memories and they don't always come with that bad feeling, just what I see in my mind. And then it leads to that bad feeling. That's fine too. That will be a flashback as well. Um, sometimes it can have body memory, sometimes not. Okay. I feel like I answered all those. There were a lot of follow-ups on that. And I hope that that was clear. So let me know if not, let's move on to question number four. This says, hi, Katie, can you talk a bit about the importance and healing power of the therapeutic relationship? Always happy to do it. They say specifically, For trauma and corrective emotional experiences with a therapist. I've been seeing my therapist for almost two years now, and he is absolutely wonderful. But with having complex PTSD from an abusive alcoholic father, it makes it really hard to be vulnerable and not constantly put up walls since I am so disconnected from my emotions. My therapist talked about how when I do have these breakthrough moments of showing vulnerability, it gives an opportunity for a corrective experience, yes, so that he can show that he's not going to abuse me when I show vulnerability. I know you've talked a lot about attachment to a therapist and transference in other podcasts, but what does a healthy attachment look like and, uh, to allow for corrective experiences? And can those th- same things happen even if there's a bit too much attachment? Yes is the answer. It can happen even if there's a little bit too much attachment. So if anybody's wondering, corrective experiences are essentially like... um let's say you get really mad at your therapist and you treat them kind of like the way that you would want to have treated your parent, like a mom or a dad, right? Emotional, uh, abusive, alcoholic father. So I can lash out at my therapist and instead of the therapist lashing back, right? Because that would be like, what's what that means is we're having transference. And instead of that's why I'm always saying like transference isn't bad and it happens all the time. When that transference happens, a good therapist will not do counter transference. And that would be where they would like lash out back at you or, or react to that transference. When they don't do that and they act healthfully when you're seeing a good therapist, that corrective experience means that you can lash out at your therapist and your therapist doesn't react. Your therapist responds thoughtfully. So like, let's say And this happens all the time. I'm trying to think of an experience or a more recent example. Um, Oh, okay. I had a patient. This is actually like a long time ago, maybe 10 years ago now. Um, She was a super duper people pleaser and we were working on it a lot. And so she would have trouble in our sessions not doing everything she thought that I wanted her to do. And so I had told her, you know, given her her homework or whatever. And then I said, I don't want you to do it fully. I want you to turn it in not complete. And she said, well, how much not complete? I said, I don't know. You decide. And she got kind of agitated and not angry because people please remember. But she was like, well, I can't do it right. Then if you don't tell me, you're like setting me up for failure. She started to get a little irritated. And I said, I'm not, there's not fail or pass here. You know, I talked to her let's pretend her name is Daisy. I said, Daisy, this isn't like a pass or fail. You're, you're doing wonderful. I just want you to not fully complete it. She's like, well, I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense. And now how do I know what I'm supposed to do? I was like, you do what feels right for you. It like sent her into a tailspin. But instead of me reacting, because she had a horribly emotionally abusive mother who always told her she wasn't good enough, you know, and she tried to like walk on eggshells, do everything perfect so that she wouldn't get yelled at. Right. So instead of me reacting like that, where I'm like, um, when she brought in the homework. Okay. So she did, I think she didn't do, was it like one thing? One part of it, which was fine, and I said that was amazing. I'm so proud of you for not fully completing it. That well, how hard was it, you know? And we talked about it. That was that corrective experience. She didn't do something all the way. Yes, I know some of you are probably saying, "Well, you told her not to." Well, our homework later was for her to randomly pick one homework assignment and not do it fully, which you know was difficult, and we got that pushback again. But instead of me reacting to her and getting angry back and being like you know, I don't know what your problem is. I'm just telling you something simple. You should be able to do it, right? I mean, no one would, or I'd hope nobody's therapist talks to them that way. That's not a therapeutic experience. That's not a good response. That's a reaction. And so instead of doing that, I was able to show her how you could not do things quote unquote perfectly, and you could still be offered love, support, and connection. And it was okay. And we had to do that a lot, like over and over and over again. And so what your therapist is telling you is that When you show the vulnerability, when you open up a little bit, it's not met with abuse or harm. It's met with connection and support. And so we're trying to prove slowly to our nervous system and our brain and our body that it's okay and it's safe to be vulnerable, right? We have to be careful about who we do it with. We have to be selective, Right. Because abuse makes it hard for us to trust ourselves, and then and to trust others at all. And we can think if we open up at all, people are going to harm us. And so we just kind of lock ourselves down. And having these corrective experiences can show us that in some situations, with some people, we can open up and it can be okay. Or like in my patient's case, not being perfect was okay. That's what we were working on, because it's part of what like led to her eating disorder and all sorts of other issues. Um, and so. Working through that and giving a corrective experience where I was able to t- to care for her and show up for her even when she wasn't perfect and that didn't mean she got yelled at or neglected because that's what happened. Her mom was like horribly abusive. Anyway, um, you know, it was healing for her and obviously we had to work out like who was safe in life and who wasn't and who we should allow ourselves to let the guard down with and not but that's how it can be healing. And yes, it can happen if there's a little bit too much of attachment. I think that's really common. And part of part of what I work with my patients on is understanding their attachment, being able to talk about it and talk about the boundaries around it and what comes up for them with regard to that. Um and that doesn't mean you can't have those corrective experiences because again, you're attached and we're still able to talk about it. It's not a get out of here. What are you doing? That's so bad. Like that's bad of you. We don't, as a therapist, we never want to send that message that anything you're doing is wrong. Um, obviously, unless you're like threatening your therapist, which I've had that, like I've said, I've had that happen a couple of times and that is not okay. And you, I have to be like firm, but you're still again, uh, loving, holding space and trying to, to show them a better experience. So I hope that that makes sense and answers your question. Okay, let's move on to question number five. It says, Hi Katie, do you know what causes such a hollow, empty feeling inside? And how do you fix it? I have complex PTSD, depression, and anxiety from childhood emotional neglect. And I'm in therapy working on self worth. I've made a lot of progress in the past year. Amazing. But I still have this scooped out, empty feeling inside that I can't seem to fill. What causes this and how do I make it go away? It was interesting when I first saw this question, like reading the first part of it without reading through the rest. I was like, ooh, emotional neglect must have happened. So when we've been abused, especially emotionally neglected, um, that hollow empty feeling is really common. And the reason for it is because our parents sucked and we were neglected. So that, that void is essentially where love, compassion, connection, and family was supposed to go. And when we're neglected, we it's just like there's a piece missing. And that's why I don't know if you're feeling this way, but a lot of people who have this like hollow feeling will do one of two things. They will either one, try to shove everybody into it. So anybody who seems, especially therapists. So let's say it was your mom who was the most neglectful, will attach quickly to like female a caregiver type people could be teachers in school, then could be a school counselor. It could be a boss at work or an older woman in our life. It could be, um, you know, anybody like that. And maybe like even someone that teaches at our gym or it could be something like that too. Okay. So we take that person and we're like, oh my God, they're going to be my everything. And we get overly attached to them really quickly. So we can do that. Or we can do the second option is we're like, nobody's safe. We do this kind of like anxious avoidant type reaction where we're like, keep everybody out. If I let anybody in, I'm gonna get hurt too much. So back away, back away, back away. And we isolate and we withdraw. And when anybody tries to get close, we're like, hightail it out of there, super uncomfortable. And so I think that empty feeling is coming from that. And part of it will be in that inner child work and offering that love and compassion and the attention that you so desperately needed as a child. Attention is not a bad word. Attention is not a bad thing to need. We all need it. And offering that to yourself as you need, I think will be incredibly healing. And then also, so that I think that's the largest component of this, okay? And that's going to be where your work lies is in the inner child work. And I would encourage you to pick up The Emotionally Absent Mother or The Emotionally Unavailable Father, depending. Those are both great books. They're both in my Amazon shop. So make it easy for you You to go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. You can find them there. Those are both great books for this. But Also, so that's part of it. I think that is the crux of this. But the second component and something that I think might be true for others is if we just feel very empty, sometimes that's due to our depression and our our urge to numb out and disconnect. Empty usually comes from a lack of acknowledgement of what's happening for us and what's going on inside. What are we feeling? Which kind of goes back up to like that first question, about feeling those feelings, we can kind of try to tap back in. We can try to move our bodies and get back in touch with our body. You know, as simple as I was uh, talking, I think on the last podcast, but maybe the one before that, about how I've been reading a lot about somatic experiencing because I'm putting together a workshop with a friend of mine. And one of the first things that Dr. Peter Levine has you do is just notice the water hitting your skin in the shower. And that's a good way to try to get back in touch with your body. So that could be some way to start um, with that too. Okay. I hope that that helps. I hope that makes sense. Let's move on to question number six. And that question says Hi, Katie. As a therapist, and this might be triggering for people. So there was a warning. So I'm going to offer you that same warning. Um, You might want to skip forward like 10 minutes. It says, As a therapist, what would you think if a client told you that masturbation is often accompanied by self injurious behavior? I've had that happen a lot, actually. And I've heard it from many of you over the years, too. What is meant? Uh, What is meant by this is that the body performs certain auto destructive actions automatically without the person being able to actively interrupt these actions. It's a bit like when a switch is flipped and the body then acts without the mind being able to stop it. Yeah, it happens all the time. My patients will dissociate. It's usually dissociation. Um, And my patients will dissociate and harm themselves. The whole issue involves a lot of guilt and shame. It's funny how even the person who asked this question is so disconnected from this that they're writing it from the third person. Um, okay, I just have to draw attention to that. The whole issue involves a lot of guilt and shame and doesn't involve pleasure, even though the body reacts in a sexual way. We'll get into that. Do you have any tips on how to slowly reprogram the body? And what are your thoughts as a therapist? Are there causes other than? Um, uh, oh, a sexual abuse Sa for such behavior. Thank you so much for all you're doing. You are amazing. Of course, I'm, I'm happy it's helpful. Okay. So incredibly common, especially if we have sexual abuse in our past. And I think I'm going to be honest here in my experience, in my practice, and from what you've told me online, sexual abuse or sexual assault or sexual anything is really the, it's the only uh, cause that I've seen for this. So if you find yourself doing this, I'd be very curious about your past and talking about that with a therapist and digging into what happened to you, because usually it's childhood sexual abuse. In my experience, that doesn't mean it's a hundred percent of the time, just because that's only way I've seen it, but that's clearly the most common. Now the reason, okay, so let's get into, there's so much to talk about here. Um, And I have a video, I did a video years ago. It was, uh, if you probably look up like, um, it was my sex series. So if you did sex series, Katie Morton on YouTube, it should come up. There are like three videos. And I talk a lot about this. Um, I forget the video. If someone can find it, could you put it in the comments for me? That would be wonderful. Now, um, masturbation can can in and of itself be a form of self-harm. I've had a lot of my patients who have a sexual abuse past utilize masturbation as a form of self-harm because in a way we're almost like reenacting the abuse. And that can be as uncomfortable and as shameful as it is it's almost a good sign because I see it kind of in the same way I've talked about flashbacks being a good sign where it's like our brain and body telling us like it's ready to process what we, what we went through and what trauma we sustained. And that's kind of why this is happening. It can also be done I've had a lot of patients become really, um, really sexualized after the abuse and they use sex as a way to kind of harm themselves too. Not just masturbation, like sex with another partner Um, and consensual sex, Um, but they can do that as well. And it can also, we can become hypersexualized, where we, you know, want to, we engage in really risky sexual behavior. And I always tell people like safety first, I understand why this is happening. There's no judgment that needs to be involved, but please, you know, use protection, get tested, take care of yourself in that way. And you know, I worry about the situation and stuff. So be safe as much as possible. Um, Okay. So masturbation, then because it's a reenactment of our trauma, self-injury, if you guys haven't realized this is a coping skill for what comes up for us. So if we're reenacting the trauma, that's going to be Overwhelming, super triggering. We have, might even have flashbacks, feel like we're right back there and it could be happening to us again. We can feel like we're watching, you know, flipping through the photo album of these horrible scenarios we wish we could forget, right? If that's happening to us, how do we express the pain? A lot of us use self injury as that coping skill and we express the pain that way. And often when we're overwhelmed too, we can dissociate. And so that dissociation and feeling like you're not even in control, it's so incredibly common. And that's really what I think is happening here. I think we're triggered we're unaware of the trigger we start masturbation because we're reenacting the trauma and then we self injury we use in self-injuries behavior because you know we're dissociated it's overwhelming we're triggered we masturbate we dissociate we self-injure and that's kind of like our cycle and so really the key here would be to, for you to try to uh, to figure out what those triggers are and what triggered you could you track back that last time this happened and could we figure out what it is because then we can prepare ahead then we can have coping skills in place. We can try new things. We can try impulse logs. We can distract. We can, you know, journal it out. We can call our therapist. We can do all of those things before. And we again, it's not we're gonna be able to notice and then never do it again. It's gonna be a process, not perfection. Be patient with yourself. It will get better. I know there's a lot of shame associated, but this is way more common than we just haven't talked about it recently. So thank you for being brave and sharing this. Um now I also want to acknowledge the fact that. A physiological response, meaning like orgasm when we masturbate, even though it's not a pleasurable thing and we're having a flashback and we can feel like we're being abused again. That's a physiological response. We don't have any control over that. Our body can orgasm when we're being abused. And that does not mean we enjoyed it. That doesn't mean that we did anything or asked for it. That is a physiological response. Just tell yourself that. I know that's a lot where a lot of the shame and guilt can come from, but we don't have any control over that, unfortunately. I'm so sorry. I hate that part. I wish we could like turn that off. It makes me angry. Okay. Um and then do you have any tips on how to slowly reprogram the body and what are your thoughts um oh other than a sexual uh, abuse. Honestly, it's it's usually some kind of abuse. Maybe physical abuse. Maybe it wasn't sexual in nature, but more often than not it is sexual abuse or some kind of abuse could be emotional abuse, could be emotional neglect. Um yeah. Some kind of abuse is the most common. That's what I've seen. If anybody has other scenarios in your life, you know, that happened that you think has led to this for you, if you feel free, if you feel comfortable sharing, please do, because that's what I've seen. Um, yeah, but abuse of any kind it doesn't always have to be sexual. And then um, reprogramming the body, a lot of it is actually more about the triggers and managing that. That's where I would start and processing any trauma in our past. Okay. Um, I think that's it for that. Now there's comments on this. I think there's two. Now the first comment says, "Yes, please answer as an add-on though. How can I know if I use masturbation as self-harm through childhood or if I have an overly active libido? For context, I haven't been sexually abused, but ever since I was 4, I remember masturbating as a way to torture or punish myself. I'm very suspicious of this. I haven't been sexually abused. A lot of times we don't have memory before the age of 5, like long-term memory. So, I'm very curious because remember, sexual abuse is also if your parents put on pornography or had sex, excuse me, or had sex in front of you as a child, that's sexual abuse as well. Or, you know, having a a cousin or a sibling or another kid at school, um, you know, that can be abusive too. And that abuse can happen, you know, child on child sexual abuse. I'm very, I, I think there's something here, not to say like, I'm trying to put memories in your brain that don't exist, but a four-year-old is not sexual. I know that might be hard to hear, but we don't have like their hormone. We're not, we're not mature enough. A four-year-old is not sexual. Something happened and you were shown how to masturbate by someone. And I something happened. I, I'm sorry. I know that that might be hard to hear, but And doing it as a way to torture or punish, that's interest, right? That's not normal child behavior because developmentally you aren't sexual yet. And so I really, I think we need to dig in there because something happened. And it said, however, I told myself that I did this in public because I'm a sick, perverted, masochistic psychopath. I know it all sounds odd, but I would constantly imagine bad things happening to me and sometimes to my mom. I wonder if your mom abused you. The thoughts and stories created were pretty violent. I ended up being diagnosed with pure OOCD, but I just couldn't stop myself from thinking that I, have sadomasochistic, oh, that I have sadomasochistic tendencies and even psychopathic tendencies. All in all, I can't deny I physically reacted as if I were truly enjoying myself. Um, I've gotten wet and come close to having orgasms. What do you think, Katie? Do I truly have OCD or am I really a sadomasochist? Thanks for everything you do. I really think that you were abused. Now I know that you're like, I wasn't, but I, I'm very suspicious. This is not, again, not normal child activity. I don't, and I don't want to bring you any shame because there's no shame in what you're doing. Something happened to you. Someone showed you how to do this and it's interesting that your mom is, you know, in the, those, when you imagine bad things happening, I'm very curious about your mother and whether you were abused by her or, or maybe someone else, maybe it was your father or the man in her life. Um, it's just, it's very interesting it that's not, a, I, I don't know how else to put it. It doesn't sound like OCD to me at all. I know that we can have, you know, those types of OCD tendencies, I guess, but this is at four. That's not, that's not, I don't, I just can't agree with that. Those are my thoughts. You might not like my answer, and I'm sorry if you don't, but you're not a sadomasochist. You were an abused child and you were trying to make sense of what happened to you because to punish and torture yourself at four. That's just not, that's not natural that something happened. You were shown sexualized content. You were sexualized. Something took place. Now there was another comment on this said, yes, and using sex and masturbation as a way to self-harm. Yes. Like I was talking about trying so hard to be normal that you keep re-traumatizing yourself, even with safe partners or using your reactions to punish yourself for what happened if your partner isn't safe. Hell, I've been told I intentionally place myself in unsafe situations leading to more assaults, um, to try to make sense of childhood sexual abuse trafficking. And I didn't know what FGM is, and I forgot to look it up. Um, Let me look it up. Sorry, guys, I forgot to do this. Oh, female genital mutilation. Sorry, that's just not something I've seen a lot. Um, How do you get control back once those parts take over? I think part of it is, unfortunately, like the, the trauma work itself and the inner child work. And it, you're going to have to fight. So I've had this happen with a patient of mine where we had to really fight for self-compassion for her as she tried to process, you know, and overcome the hypersexuality component of it because she, this was a patient of mine um, I saw actually in the treatment center, but she was hypersexualized and would put herself in really, like I said, really dangerous situations and, and do things like that that were, you know, it would end up to her re-traumatizing herself. So hers wasn't even with safe partners. It was with, you know, essentially random people. And it was her way of like taking control back, but it ended up making her feel worse. And it was in, it was re-traumatizing. And so we were just trying to help her process what happened to her. We did a lot of uh, a lot of movement therapy she did with like the yoga instructor at the treatment center. And that was really healing. So you might want to look into some of those. I think especially when it's sexual abuse or something about getting our bodies back and, and owning them and moving them through it can be really helpful and healing. EMDR was also really beneficial for her, but getting control back is more about the processing it and offering it of the compassion. Now, it's what you're doing is very normal and it's part of your brain and body trying to make sense of what all the trauma that you went through, but we'll have to. Find the therapist that's a good fit that feels safe. There are a ton, especially from, um, you know, childhood sexual abuse and trafficking and things like that. There are a ton of like support groups and stuff, even online. There, there were over. Maybe things are coming out of COVID now, but there's a lot of resources. I'd encourage you to start looking online and and tap into some of those communities because even one of my good friends, Abba, used to work at a domestic violence home that was like a safe house for uh, mothers and children, and they had a ton of groups for this and a lot of support. And so look into your local resources or ask your therapist to find them for you, because I really think that processing through that trauma, offering compassion, understanding, and then reclaiming your body through therapeutic movement, I think will be really healing. And yeah, so that's, but what you're doing is, is totally normal it's, it's again it's like our brains way of saying like hey i'm ready to process through this like let me do this you know and it's trying it's best to give us a better outcome but because we're not putting ourselves in safe situations or we're harming ourselves again we're having that same reaction and that's what's causing us to you know again feel re-traumatized but know that it's normal. If any of you out there have been going through this and you never felt safe enough to leave a comment like that or talk about that, know that what you're going through is okay. It's normal. It's part of our process. We just need to find a good fit with a therapist who gets it, who can help us work through it. Okay? It does and it can and will get better. Now let's move on to question number seven. It says, hello, I keep hearing that therapy is supposed to be hard work and people have therapy hangovers and all this stuff, but I don't. And I feel like I must be doing something wrong. No, no. Is it cause for concern that it hasn't been hard for me? Have I just not been putting in the effort or maybe I just haven't been doing, or maybe I have just been doing superficial stuff and the deeper stuff will come later. It's been about four months and I've gotten some benefits from the therapy, but overall, there hasn't been too much progress. So could that be related? I know that there isn't one right, um, right away to do therapy and that it's a process, but I can't help but feel that I am doing it wrong. Now, it depends on what you're working on. For me personally, I have therapy hangovers because I just cry a lot and I just feel exhausted it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with therapy itself. It's more like the fact that emotionally for me, it's like a dump zone and I dump and then I'm tired. Um, but for other people, if you're processing trauma, it's going to be exhausting because you're digging into that stuff and you can feel really uh, dysregulated and overwhelmed, right? So we can feel tired also. But for a lot of people, you go in, you talk about stuff and you actually feel better. It's It's okay. However you feel is fine. All I want to make sure of is that number one, you feel like you are being challenged in therapy. And number two, you're talking about things that are, you know, maybe you never really talk with other people about. It doesn't mean they have to be difficult to talk about. They're just things we don't share with everyone. And also, I guess, three, um, you said that you, you feel like you're getting some benefits. And that was all I was going to say is make sure that you're getting some benefit, that you do feel a little bit better because you've been in therapy. And that's really it that is really you know you're you're doing good you're in therapy you're working what you need to work therapy is hard work but not all the time throughout every session it's not always like that i think it's just hard when it comes to like behavioral change like actually making change in your life and doing things differently it's difficult but it doesn't mean you have to have a therapy hangover everybody's experience is going to be different okay let's move on to question number 8 this question says hello everyone I'd like to hear Katie's thoughts on what to do about passive suicidal thoughts. Good question. We kind of talked about this before a little bit. I feel like because I don't have active thoughts of suicide, then I shouldn't make a big deal out of it in therapy. Oh, but you should talk about it. You don't have to make a big deal. You should bring it up, even though it's a big deal to me. Well, if it's a big deal to you, it's a big deal in therapy, period. Should I be contacting my therapist when I have those thoughts or wait until my next session to bring them up? It's a million times harder to bring it up when I'm thinking clearly because describing that illogical headspace is embarrassing. Thanks, Katie. Well, if it's hard to bring it up in session and to wait, then you need to reach out at the time. Because if it feels like a big deal to you, it's a big deal to your therapist and needs to be brought to their attention. Um, We don't want to wait until they're active to talk about it. Because when we can, when they're passive, that gives us time to create safety plans, to put in some procedures or things so that we can protect you and make sure that you're okay and that your therapist and you have like a check in kind of thing planned and you already know like what to do. So it's like, why? It's, it's like the old adage, was it Roosevelt who said, like, the time to repair your roof is when the sun is shining? And that goes for suicidal ideation as well. The time to put together a safety plan is when you're not actively thinking about it. Because like you said, that illogical headspace makes it impossible to create a safety plan. So yes, please bring it up with your therapist. It's important to talk about it so that you can put a plan in place to keep you safe. And always, if, if in doubt, if you think it's bothersome or it's a big deal to you, it's okay to reach out. And since you're not able to talk about it easily in session, it's better for you to do it in the moment. So yes, please reach, reach out, contact them while you're having those thoughts. Okay. Now there's a comment on this that our thoughts of wanting, quote unquote, wanting to be, for example, like hit by a bus to escape everything that's going on, be considered suicidal thoughts. Yes. Passive suicidal thoughts. The goal is not necessarily to end it, but rather escape and not having to deal with life. And to clarify the thought passes when the bus is out of sight. Yes. Those are, that's what I would call passive suicidal ideation. The thoughts kind of come and then they go. Um, But if you find these thoughts being like, I could just hit those people or I could just jump off this bridge and they're not always like suicide related. They're just like violent in nature. That can be part of OCD. I have a lot of patients over the years who will have these like violent or sexualized, like intrusive thoughts as part of their OCD. It sounds like yours is like to escape. So I don't think that's what's happening with this person in particular. But anybody else out there having that kind of, you know, things popping in your head, we're like, uh, and you don't like it. It's uncomfortable. You're like, why did I think that? What's wrong with me? That's OCD. Whereas when you're like, I, you know, the bus will hit me and I can just escape everything. I'm so sick of dealing with that. That's a passive suicidal thought. Okay. Um, now, in addition, this, is another question it says, I read an article about living in a gray area of suicide um, that we aren't suicidal, but we're having suicidal thoughts. I think there are moments in life where I'm living in such a gray area. Could you explain a little bit more about this and also living in the gray area of suicide as being a passive suicidal person? I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks. And PS, I hope your doggo is much better. Hopefully she doesn't get traumatized from the attack. Yeah. If you guys didn't know Roxy, this will be coming out a couple of weeks after the fact, but, um, uh, Roxy poked her head through our fence on our property and some guy wasn't watching his dogs and they came through the bushes onto our property and bit her in the nose. Um, and she's okay. We took her or Sean took her to the emergency vet. They gave her some antibiotics, cleaned up the wounds And so far she's fine. I mean, right now she's napping. So she doesn't know what the big deal is. But at the time I'd never heard her scream like that. And I was very angry and very upset. Okay. Um, But she's okay. And I hope she's not traumatized. She seems fine. Our resilient little girl, but um, we'll see. We'll see how she does. Okay. So now this last question about the gray area, I think that's like passive suicidal ideation. And for a lot of people, it can be long-term. It can hang around for a long time, especially if we aren't getting treatment meaning we aren't seeing a therapist and aren't on medication because I find sometimes to get it to go away altogether, we have to have therapy and medication on board, both being effective, both working on it. Um, and that can, you know, pull us out of it, but know that you don't have to live with those thoughts. You don't have to deal with it. It's not, it's not acceptable to have to live in that gray passive suicidal space. That's not comfortable. Nobody likes feeling that way. And so, yeah, I think, is that all? Um, yeah. Could I explain a little bit more about this? I mean, I don't know if I'd call it the gray area of suicide. I don't really like that term. I would just say it's passive suicidal ideation. And I wouldn't even say being a passive suicidal person. I don't like to call like to name people like you're a depressed person. I don't like that. I like the, what we would call, uh, what's the word when you want to, sorry guys, remember I'm a little tired. So my brain's like, um. but when we want to like separate ourselves from our illness. It's like the reason that we give names to our eating disorder voice or self-injury voice or our addiction voice externalization. I knew it would come to me in a minute. So we want to externalize the problem, not internalize because you're not suicidal. That's not who you are. That's something that you're struggling with. So you're someone who has suicidal thoughts, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I, I, that's really, those are really my thoughts about it. I think passive suicidal ideation is very common, but it's something we need to speak up about. We need to get support about so we can make it go away for good. Okay. Final question. Question number nine says, hi, Katie, I'm going to try this again. Glad that you did. We picked it up randomly. I went, shh. Got yours. It says, how do YouTubers set healthy boundaries with their viewers and listeners who often emotionally depend on them? I read a lot of comments about YouTube videos helping with anxiety and depression, but does it ever feel like a responsibility to keep up the work? Um, if you let it get that way, yes. And I used to do that to myself. If anybody's been like an OG OG, like way back in the day, probably the first like two years of my channel, I could respond to every comment on every social media platform just let that soak in for a minute. Cause even saying it, I'm like, holy shit balls. But it used to not be so overwhelming, right? We used to be such a small community. Just like anything, the community grows and I'm only one person. And I will be honest, even back then it was overwhelming and I couldn't sustain it. And I remember telling Sean, like, I'm going to have to stop. I don't, and I didn't want to like stop cold Turkey. So then I did that. That's why I did the five videos a week. I moved into like going through the social media platforms and answering five questions or, and I think it was like, two to three or so questions from each platform so that I was still getting through some comments. And now, you know, I get in a little bit and I do my best and, but I pull questions for this and we have live streams on Patreon and there's a lot of ways to get your question answered. Also, we have the Facebook group where people can support each other like peer um, peer support, but you have to take care of yourself because you can't pour from an empty pitcher. And I'm all, I'm not perfect at this either. So don't think that me talking about this means that I don't fuck up because I totally do. But I think the best way for me has been communicating to you. Like every time I've changed something or or said like, I can't get through it all. That's how the Kenyan name came to be. If anybody's new and wonders, why do you call the viewers Kenyans? Well, our community are the Kenyans because back in the day, the movie Despicable Me came out, the first one. I know we've been around for a while, you guys. But the first Despicable Me uh, movie came out and I was communicating with all of you because I love you and want to tell you what's happening. And I was saying like, I can't do it all. Like I don't have a bunch, I'm not like grew. I don't have a bunch of minions in the back, you know, commenting on comments and responding. Like it's just Sean and I, and I'm the only one with a psychology degree, right? Sean can't answer your mental health questions. Um, And he's also busy editing. So anyway, I had talked about that. And so it was like Katie's minions and the Kenyans. And that's how it came to be Um, because you all can offer your experience and that is just as valuable, sometimes more than my expertise. And that's been really beautiful to see. And so communication is always key when, when placing healthy boundaries. I think that it's, for me, it's important for me to interact and to talk with you all because that keeps me motivated and it continues to be fulfilling because then I can actually see change and I can know that I'm helping, you know, because that's part of why I do what I do is just to know that you're being helpful. And so communicating with your viewers and only doing as much as you can. And if you can't do like, okay, so I can't get in the comments of a video because I'm actually on vacation. Let people know that Instagram stories, YouTube stories are so many ways to communicate. So letting people know, Hey, peace out. I'm going to be on vacation, but I'll be back. Um, I think that's healthy too. And I think that when it like the emotionally dependent part of it, is what's not healthy. Because YouTubers and creators such as myself, we're we're resources. And I can give you language and help you feel heard and understood. But I'm not your therapist. You know, I don't meet with you in my office. We're not, I don't see you every week. And that's where finding your own therapist and your own support system is super important. And that's why the community component is so key and why our community is so wonderful, is because a lot of us are looking for that connection. There's nothing wrong with wanting more connection and needing some emotional support. Um, But I'm one person and I can't do it all. And so I think a lot of it is just that it can be helpful, but communicating when you're going to be available and when you're not. And as the creator and as the therapist, it's always on me to do that. And so if I don't have the energy or wherewithal to respond, I don't. And it's not my fault. And you can't count on me to always respond, right? Because I might have already moved on from that video or that comment thread. I might be on to the next post. And it's, you know, I don't check DMs on Instagram because I just can't get through them all. And I do my best to communicate this as much as possible and let people know. Um, but again, you know, I'm just one person and that's why getting your own therapist is so key. So I think a lot of it's just communication with your audience and letting the community be there for you and connecting in the way that you can. Um, and knowing that you can't depend emotionally on a, a YouTuber, on someone who you don't see in person and don't have you can't make appointments. You can look forward to their content and use it as a resource. That's what I like to see myself of as, is like a helpful resource, right? Um, because a lot of us don't have access to other things. And so, but you need to have your own social supports, whether it's online support through a group or through, you know, even, uh, even our community. I know a lot of you get together and hang out on your own. Um, but I think that that stuff's really important and that's really where the healing begins. But it, you know, again, I'm only one person. And I think everybody understands that we're all adults here, right? I do my best. But that's why I'm always encouraging you to to get your, you know, your own therapist to set up your own support system so that if I'm not available, because I'm a human, and I I can't do it all, that you have other supports to lean on. And I think that's kind of the problem. I always tell my patients and I haven't talked about this in a while. And maybe this is something that I bring up in another video. But um, we don't want to have like a a one-legged table, right? That's not very sturdy. You can't put stuff on a one-legged table. It's going to fall right over. Or I guess even if it has like a wide base, right? You could push it to fall over. It's just not very sturdy. You'd be much better with a four-legged table, right? And that's what support, social support is supposed to be like. You can't just depend on me putting out a video or commenting back or messaging with you and talking with you or answering your question in the podcast. That's not enough. We're going to need more supports so that our our emotional what do I? How do I even call it? Like our, I guess our dysregulation, or our ability to stay regulated, is more sturdy than that. Our resilience is greater, right? We have more things to lean on. Oh, if that leg goes out, right? Can't get a hold of Katie. Tried to comment, she didn't comment back because you know she's moving on to the next thing. I can call my sister. I can reach out to my Facebook group. I can call my therapist or text with her. I can. Text the crisis text line. You know we need to have these different legs of support because some of them might not be available. You know that's a beautiful thing about YouTube. To be honest, is it's available twenty four seven. So if it's two in the morning, you can still watch old videos of mine and you can hopefully feel connected and know that you're not alone because you're not alone. I just cannot always do one on one comments back and forth, and I hope you all understand. And I think you do. Um, but I hope that that kind of yeah, I hope that that makes sense. And that's how I sustain. Otherwise, I'd be totally burnt out and could not continue because again it's just me just one person. Thank you all so much for your questions. Thank you for sharing this podcast. Thank you for all of your wonderful reviews. I hope um I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you next time. You can ask her about your therapist or vent about your work. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie.